Listen, beloved, rest in the truth today, the biblical truth that you're known by God. He knows the way of the righteous. Hello, and thanks for listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast. You're listening to Doxology, a sermon series through seven essential psalms. For more audio and theological content, visit thisisshoreline.com. I want to start our time together this morning with a little survey. So as we open up the scriptures together, good job, Daryl. That was awesome. Uh, We are going to look at two different things, and I want to just get a survey, a shoreline survey, as it were, uh, as we begin this morning. So I'm going to actually give you two options. There's no third option, okay? There's no opt-out. You can only pick one or the other, so we're going to be very, very specific and and, uh, exclusive here. So you can only pick one of these two, okay? And I just want to see by your response, you can clap, you can shout, you can agree out loud, amen, whatever you want to do, but this is going to kind of help us kind of determine which of these are the greater one out of the two based on Shoreline. We'll start with one that we did last week in some of our team discussions and at the next class. Uh, Sweet tea or unsweet tea? How many of you are for sweet tea? Let's hear it. All right. Okay. And how many of you are for unsweet tea? Ah. So based on how I just heard it, unsweet tea kind of wins. That's interesting. Have you guys not been to Publix? Um, All right. So then we have the old debate that goes all the way back to the very beginning. We have the cat versus dog debate. So who's a cat person here this morning? Cat. I I don't even want to ask. Who are dog people here this morning? Wow. All right. Awesome. I'm glad to know we're all Christians, so that's good. That's good. That's good. All right, and this one's very controversial, so I'm sorry we have to do this at church. So forgive me, Lord, but you either love the Yankees or you strongly reject the Yankees, okay? So who loves the Yankees here this morning? Notice it's two people, but they're the loudest, all right? And who strongly rejects the Yankees? (laughs) You're like, do I clap or boo on that one? I don't know, I don't know. No, all right, good job. Now, as silly as that was, Um, The truth is that all of humanity is divided into two camps, two groups, okay? Two categories of people, and these have nothing to do with cats or dogs. They have nothing to do with tea and certainly nothing to do with sports rivalries as serious and intense as those are. I'm not talking this morning about politics, race, socioeconomic kind of background. I'm not talking about gender. We find these two groups on center stage Right here in Psalm chapter 1, as we open up the first song in the hymn book of God's people, the 150 songs that we know categorically simply as the Psalms. The early church father Jerome once quoted the opinion of some that the first Psalm was the preface of the Holy Spirit to the Psalter. In other words, it was set apart and distinct. This psalm seems to stand alone as an outline to show us the distinction between two types of people, the blessed or the righteous and the wicked or the unrighteous. And it shows us that the blessed ones are the ones who show a concern for God, who live for God, and who trust in the promises of God's covenant. And so then the rest of the psalms seem to detail 
this incredible picture of the goodness and the faithfulness of God who can still be worshipped in the midst of all sorts of situations in life, in the midst of joy and in the midst of calamity. He can be worshipped in the midst of blessing as well as in the midst of trouble. God is worthy of our worship even when the whole world around us is crumbling. And we can look back at his faithfulness and look ahead with hope uh, for his glory. So Psalm 1 is rightly categorized as a wisdom psalm. Uh, Last week we began this series, Doxology, and we mentioned we're going to be studying eight essential psalms. Together, as we begin um, this series, we start with the category of the wisdom psalms. And a wisdom psalm is a song written specifically about how to live in a way uh, that fears God and brings blessing. Thomas Watson said this, he said, it is known as the psalm of psalms. So it's kind of important for it contains in it the very pith and quintessence of Christianity. There's a word. This psalm carries blessedness in the front piece. It begins where we all hope to end. It may well be called a Christian's guide, for it discovers the quicksands where the wicked sink down in perdition and the firm ground on which the saints tread to glory. So we're going to see this psalm outlined in three sections. And I want to put this on the screen. You can jot these down. Or if you've got the Bible app, we have an event today that you can follow along uh, the notes as well. Uh, You can always pull out your phone and take a picture if you want to do that. So we're going to see the righteous in verses 1 through 3. But we're going to see the unrighteous in verses 4 and 5. And then ultimately above and and distinct from his creation is the sovereign God in verse 6. So remember, as we do this and as we continue the series, we're exegeting a song, okay? Just think about that for a minute. Don't forget that. This was written to be sung. So we're going to do that now. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. Uh, Though this song doesn't have choruses, it doesn't have a bridge, um, the song does begin with a beautiful picture of the blessed life. And so you could imagine with me just for a minute the harp beginning to strum. You can picture with me as we begin this psalm, maybe it's in a major key. It's in kind of a bright, joyful, cheerful tone. It's a song that you listen to and it kind of perks you up uh, and kind of gets you excited. So let's start with uh, verse 1 in our first section, the righteous. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, blessed is the man. I want you to circle that whole phrase, blessed is the man. Now, obviously, this is speaking about mankind, not just men. Blessed is the man or woman. Blessed is the person, he says, who does these things, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Notice with me the first word of the book of Psalms, and the first word of this song is the word blessed or blessed. Now, one of the problems, and there's a lot of problems with Christianity today, but one of the, one of the problems built into Christian culture today is that we've invented a new language, haven't we? We've invented not a Chinese or Greek. It's not English, but it's, it's kind of a hybrid new language called Christianese. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you heard of Christianese? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Um, chances are um, very few of us use Christianese in our work relationships outside of church. So in other words, it makes sense to say stuff like, 
man, I agape you, sister, right? That makes sense here, but it doesn't make sense outside of here. People are even here are like, wait, what? What does that even mean? That is weird. Um, you probably didn't ask your boss for vacation, right? That's not something that we say outside of church. Uh, unless people watch The Lord of the Rings, chances are your coworkers don't understand the word fellowship, okay? They don't get it. Like, what are you doing tonight? I'm just going to fellowship with some friends. They're like, really? Is Frodo involved? <laughs> I don't know what's going on here. Uh, I would venture to say that most unbelievers in our lives are not real certain what backsliding is, although they might think it's a new outdoor adventure sport and not a departure from walking in the spirit, backsliding. And so, see, Christianese has changed... Uh, uh, or cheapened, you could say, words like blessed. Uh, now, I looked up this week the, the word blessed. I went on Instagram, and I just looked up hashtag blessed, okay? And I was surprised at what I found. Ironically, here's what came up. This picture came up. When I looked through the, I was scrolling through, all of these were tagged hashtag blessed, okay? So I get the baby. The baby's actually kind of cute, <laughs> so I get that. Uh, and, and, and we've got everything from a sunset to people looking fresh, We've got Sydney, Australia. There's a beautiful dress. There's chocolate. But the, the greasy pizza, I don't know. I don't know <laughs> if you're hashtag blessed. Um, is that what the Bible is referring to in Psalm chapter 1, verse 1? Blessed is the man. Well, no. Uh, the Hebrew word for blessed is esher. And it means a lot more uh, than just blessed. Esher comes from another Hebrew word, bashar. And in its root form, here's what it means. It means to be right or to be straight. It means to be right or straight. So when the psalmist, most likely David, but we don't know, when the psalmist here is saying this man or woman is blessed, the idea is deeper than how we use the word. We just say, oh, I had a great get-together with some friends, and we watched, we binge-watched a show, hashtag blessed. It means so much more than that. Escher has with it the idea of happiness or contentment. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Beatitudes, Jesus begins each one of his statements with this word, blessed are, and then he says the poor in spirit. Uh, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who, uh, who are persecuted for righteousness, and so on. And the word that he uses there for blessed, we translate, oh, how happy. In other words, uh, blessed refers to the happiness but deeper than the happiness you and I use when we say, I'm happy that Starbucks is now serving the, uh, you know, the, the new unicorn uh, flavored drink, right? It's deeper than that. It means the, the favor, the contentment in the life of the person who is straight or right with God. Uh, so this means to be righteous or to be right with God means to be fulfilled above all other means of happiness or contentment under the sun. Now, this sounds completely opposite to what the world has been feeding us, doesn't it? William McDonald in his commentary says this, Daily, the world is being brainwashed into thinking that true and lasting satisfaction is found by indulging the lusts of the flesh. Television, radio, movies, and magazines all suggest that permissiveness is the road to fulfillment. The life of purity is dismissed as puritanical, but the psalmist sets the record straight. This is where true contentment is found. And notice that he says, it's blessing is found in the man who does not do a certain thing. Notice what it is. He says he does not do three things. He does not first walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the way of sinners. And he does not sit in the seat of scoffers. I don't know if you missed the progression here, but it's actually a 
a, a backwards progression or a downwards, a digression, a slowing of momentum. So first he's walking, and then he's standing, and then he's sitting. I've had conversations with people, and sometimes we're walking. We're like, okay, walk with me. And we're kind of walking, and we're discussing, and it's just a quick, I just need the details. Give me the quick conversation. How was your weekend? Great. Good to hear it. Then other times we stop and we stand. Well, oh, wow, that's interesting news. Well, let's stand here for a minute, and we discuss. And other times it's like, we need to have a seat. We need to sit down. We need to actually take some time and understand what's going on. And so that's the idea here. It's walking, and then you find yourself standing, and next you're sitting. Now, there's a lot to unpack here, but overall, there's three important things about the righteous man that I want us to learn today, uh, and three important things about the unrighteous man. So if you're taking note, three things about the righteous man. Number one on the screen, the righteous man, first of all, protects himself from or against wicked influences. Notice in verse one, the word counsel. Would you circle that word, counsel, highlight it? Uh, That word is used 52 times in the Old Testament as counsel and 11 times as advice. And it does mean counsel. It means a viewpoint or a way of thinking. When someone thinks about a course of action and they're thinking of going a direction, so they seek an advisor, a counselor, someone to uh, point them in the right direction. It's a state of mind that affects the decisions that we make. Now, in Psalm 119, David affirms in verse 24, that your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. So the righteous man is going to reject the advice, the wisdom, the influences that the wicked inundate him with uh, constantly. He's not going to walk in them. He's going to reject and protect himself against wicked influences. So what what is the counsel of the wicked, the counsel of the ungodly? Um, Stephen Cole Uh, actually defines this in five ways. And this is by no means exhaustive. This isn't the whole list, but these are certainly instructive. You might be here and say, am I walking in the counsel of the ungodly? Um, Am I listening to bad influences and letting that affect me? Well, here's a few ways to know. We'll put them on the screen. What is the counsel of the wicked? He says, here's an idea. It denies the sufficiency of Scripture for dealing with the problems of the soul. So Scripture is no longer sufficient. All that I need for life and godliness is found here. No, I need to close this and look outside of this uh, to deal with the problems of my soul. Or the counsel of the wicked exalts the pride of man and takes away from the glory of God. Thirdly, it denies or minimizes the need for the cross of Christ by asserting either the basic goodness of man or by downplaying the extent and impact of the fall. In other words, we're really not that bad. We're good people, and so God understands where we're at, and maybe we take the sting of, of death or sin, and we take away the sting of the cross, the impact of the fall. That's certainly the counsel of the wicked. Or it denies God's moral absolutes and substitutes relative human goodness. That's certainly uh, the counsel of the wicked. Or he says it focuses on pleasing self rather than on pleasing God and others. That's probably the most prominent. Just go do what feels good. Uh, search Uh, for pleasure and do whatever feels right. Now, notice that the righteous man does not walk in that counsel. But secondly, he doesn't stand in the way of sinners. Uh, Now, the way implies a path or direction. So the righteous, we don't travel down the path that sinners travel down. Now, when he says sinners, we can go, oh, okay, so that's a separate category of people. Well, listen, sin is the transgression of God's will as he's revealed it. So sin is whatever misses the will of God uh, for man uh, doctrinally or morally. So we're all sinners, 
All of us today uh, have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We all miss the mark, and we're, none of us are perfect. Uh, and we'll never be perfect in this life. And that's why Christ had to die for our sins. So we would receive his righteousness by faith. So to stand in the way of sinners, to stand in that place, means to plant your feet in a path or on a path that leads away from the word of God and away from the will of God. It's to reject God and say, I'd rather choose lawlessness and rebellion and seek to appease the desires of my flesh. Now, that certainly can be true of any of us at any time. We can choose to reject uh, the way of the cross and go the way of sinners. But see, the righteous man doesn't walk in that council. He doesn't stand in that path. And thirdly, he doesn't um, sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, circle that word scoffer there. That, that word's important. It's someone who mocks or who um, derides or expresses utter contempt. It's not just someone who disagrees. They absolutely have contempt. Now, often you'd find this word in military documentation uh, about a force who's opposing an army. So it means to fight against, it means to ridicule, and eventually what happens is you, re- you listen to rebellious counsel, then you begin to live rebelliously, and this will eventually cause you to just revile against God as a scoffer. You take a seat among the scornful. Spurgeon said this, he said, the seat of the scorner may be very lofty, but it's very near to the gate of hell. Let us flee from it, for it shall soon be empty, and destruction shall swallow up the man who sits therein. Let me just illustrate it this way, okay? It begins simply enough. Maybe if you're married, you're a married woman today, uh, and you're maybe having some marriage struggles. And so you find yourself sitting with your single girlfriends, maybe getting your nails done, you're at a salon, or you're just out to dinner, and you're sitting with your single friends, and you decide, I'm just going to start sharing some of the struggles that we're having in our marriage. Now, they're not going to get it, they're not going to understand it, they're not married, but you begin to share and open your heart and begin to devolve or, or, or share some of the issues you're going on and frustrations you're having. And they begin to counsel you. And their counsel is, girl, you deserve better. Don't put up with, with this, this stuff. Don't, don't put up with his issues. And so you begin to listen to that counsel. You begin to walk in that counsel. And what happens is soon you begin to stand not on the narrow and the difficult way of dying to self and laying down your life and loving and serving, even agape when it's not reciprocated, but on a way that seems much broader and much easier. Let me go this different path. And, and so what happens is, as they begin to give you this counsel, you begin to stand and, 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 and receive it and begin to live it out. You begin to close your body and your mind and your heart and your love to your husband. You begin to pull away, and you begin acting out what you've been thinking. What ends up happening, sadly, is that and often these situations, a woman will separate from her husband and then divorce her husband, and, and the ultimate thing she's looking for is freedom uh, or joy or contentment, which is found, ironically, in not walking in the counsel of the ungodly. And in the worst of scenarios, many people look back with scoffing at the concept of love and commitment uh, and sacrifice uh, and faithfulness. And thus, because of that, the cross, which embodies those, uh, those important elements, uh, means very little to them. And then in the saddest of situations, their faith is shipwrecked or destroyed. Why? Because they've allowed themselves to walk or to stand or to sit in a place of allowing unrighteous influences to shape them. 
Uh, Pritchard said this, sin never stands still. It always moves to control us. So know that, church, know that. So the, the first important point about the righteous man, this is a lot for the first one, is what they don't do. Okay? They don't allow extra biblical worldviews to shape them. Instead, they build protection in their lives against wicked influences. But secondly, we'll move a little faster. Secondly, the righteous man, number two, pursues God's word. Write that down. He pursues God's word. Verse two. But he doesn't do those, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So here's the positive side of the ledger, okay? Listen, Christianity is not simply prohibition, where you don't do evil things, and then you just sit idle in an empty, quiet home humming. That's not Christianity, okay? It's, it, there's a positive side of this. See, our delight, our joy, our satisfaction is found in the Word of God. So the idea here of the law of the Lord is not just the Ten Commandments. It's not just the law of God. This means all of the Bible, all of the Scriptures. So the psalmist is saying there's a driving desire in the righteous person for the revelation of God, a hunger for God to speak to them. Many people delight in different things. They delight in their children. Apparently at Shoreline, they delight in their dogs. Okay, we've, we've uh, set that up for sure. Um, you've seen their social media feeds, right? Some people, they're like shrines. They're like shrines of worship to the cuteness of their children or their dogs, right? Uh, some people delight in their tattoos. Some people delight in their diet. Some people delight uh, in their choice of beer. Some people delight in the new Marvel movie that's coming out. Uh, their eyes light up when they find out that a new restaurant's opening or when there's a new vegan toothpaste on the market. They're just excited about it, right? Other people delight in their music uh, or um, their favorite show that just came out, and so they're going to plop in bed and escape the world for a few days. Uh, that reveals where their delight is found. But look, the righteous find pleasure. They delight in the Word of God. They pursue it. They don't neglect it. And notice that they read it, uh, and not only that, but they also meditate on it, okay? This idea of meditate has with it not just reading it, but constancy and consistency. Day and night, they meditate on the Word of God. Just like a morning or afternoon or evening meal, there's a normal and frequent diet of Scripture consumption in the life of the righteous. So we think about meditate, that's a, kind of a lost art today, the idea of meditating on Scripture. Originally, <clears throat> Excuse me, originally in the Hebrew, the idea was that of mumbling something under your breath. That was the idea. You're just kind of mumbling, murmuring something to muse or to mutter. Uh, to chew on something is, is uh, actually the best idea of picturing meditation, to chew and to stir it around over and over and over. He says, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. James chapter 1, James says this in verse 25. He says, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Uh, that's kind of a counterpart to this passage. That is in context a greater passage of James speaking about um, looking at the mirror of the word of God and walking away and not doing it. He says, but the answer is the one who looks intently and, and continues to do it, meditating uh, and just camping out in Scripture. I love what Thomas Akempis said. He said, I have no rest but in a nook with the book. I like that. I have no rest but in a nook with the book. Maybe you have that place. You have a certain chair 
Maybe it's a spot on your bed. Maybe it's a corner. Maybe it's your drive to work and you've got hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Maybe you're listening to the Word of God. Whatever your spot is, I pray that we have a place and a time uh, set apart to meditate on God's Word. The righteous man or woman delights in opening God's Word and reading God's Word and in memorizing, considering, chewing on God's Word on a consistent basis. And so the result of that is this third aspect of the righteous man. Number three, the righteous man then will plant himself or herself, themselves, close to the Lord. Look at verse three, guys. Verse three says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now, notice the simile here. Uh, This is a comparison. He says he's like a tree. Okay, he's like a tree planted next to a stream of water. So in the right season, it produces fruit. And in the wrong season, in the harsh seasons, it maintains its leaves. And in every season, it's prosperous. Now, the psalmist here is referring to uh, the agrarian method of cultivation in the Middle East, Uh, where the farmer would direct streams of water to flow between different rows of trees that he had planted. Uh, And so it was from outside nourishment that the trees would receive a constant supply of moisture. Uh, The application here is pretty clear. Um, The idea is that no one can produce godly fruit on their own. In order for us to produce godly fruit, Um, that pleases the Lord, we need an outside resource. So this blessed man is planted next to a place of refreshment, a place where he is receiving constant and plentiful nourishment. Now, who is that? Who is that? That is the Holy Spirit who waters us with the Word of God. He waters a heart that has been planted in the soil of the Word of God. Remember, Jesus said that he is the vine, that we are the branches, uh, that we must abide in him, and if we do, we'll bear much fruit. And if we're not abiding in him, apart from him, we can do nothing. Many of us know what it's like to buy a tree or buy a plant or get some seeds, and we get excited, and we get home, and we go, ah, this is it. I'm going to be a farmer now because I'm hipster, and I'm going to do this. I'm going to plant my backyard, you know, rose garden. Here we go. I'm going to do this. And so you, you go to the store and maybe, or maybe you go to your neighbor's house and uproot their rose garden. I don't know. You do something and you end up with some plants in your backyard. This is it. I'm going to grow a pumpkin patch, right? So right in the middle of Lakewood Ranch. It's fine. And so you go and you begin to plant your stuff. And before you know it, you realize well, this is kind of tedious. I got to come out here every day and water this. And then you neglect it. And what happens, right? There's weeds growing up. And it stops raining for a season, not in the summertime in Florida, but for a season it's not raining, and then it dries up and it dies. It it withers and dies. Now, that's the idea of the supremacy of Christ. When we're separated from those things, we are as fruitful and healthy as a tree with no water. Uh, You and I have been planted by streams of water. (laughs) So let's not look to our own sap for strength, but the never-ending supply afforded to us by the Spirit of God. You see, in the right season, the righteous man bears fruit. He bears the fruit of the Spirit. In times of testing, where it says that um, its leaf does not wither, the idea is your witness in times of testing will not wither. And when it says there that in all that he does, he prospers, this is not a promise for you to go buy lottery tickets and you'll win every time. That's not the idea here. 
Uh, John Piper says that to prosper actually means to live a life that's not in vain. That's awesome. It, it means to prosper means to succeed in God's good purposes into eternity. So no matter what storms come our way, the question this morning is, are we rooted? Are we planted? Are we fruitful? The righteous man is planted close to the source of life, to God himself. Now, though this is an apt description of the righteous man, I want to remind you there's a second category of humanity, and we learn about them in verses 4 and 5. The unrighteous. Look at verse 4. It says, the wicked are not so. I want you to circle those two words, not so. But they're like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Remember, this is a song. So you can almost hear the music change keys. It begins to almost go to a minor key. Can't you picture drums starting to drum? And maybe the, the bass comes in and it starts to get a little bit heavy and darker. Uh, it begins to sound more like a funeral march or a dirge. Okay? Uh, that may have happened in the song. We don't know. Uh, but we do learn three things from uh, the, these three, two verses about the unrighteous man. And we're going to move through these pretty quick. So the wicked are not so. The first one I want you to jot down or take a picture is that his life is contrary to righteousness. That seems kind of obvious. But notice in verse 4 it says, the wicked are not so. Uh, so the wicked are not doing what the righteous man does. Okay? The wicked are not guarding their heart from sinful influences. The unrighteous are not abiding in Scripture. Thus, they're unable to produce a fruitful life because they're not abiding in God. That's the unrighteous. Secondly, not only are they not doing what the righteous do, but secondly, the unrighteous' life is temporal and meaningless. Notice that the psalmist calls them in verse 4, like chaff, simile, completely opposite of the tree. The tree is planted, it's safe, it's fruitful, it's solid, completely opposite idea of chaff. What's chaff? Uh, well, chaff is basically the husk or the hole that surrounded a nut or a kernel of wheat. And, and so, uh, though it seems strong, and it is kind of strong, once the nut is removed, the chaff is just light and inconsequential. So, you could, you could actually thrash or winnow uh, the wheat to remove the chaff. And sometimes you could just throw it up in the wind, and the wind would carry, in the evening in Israel, the wind would carry the chaff away, and the, the fruit of the wheat would land, or the corn would land, uh, and you'd be able to separate uh, the wheat from the chaff, even from just the wind. It was that light. The wind could just blow it out of the way. Now, we don't do that today in a lot of our contexts. We don't, we don't winnow or, or um, uh, mess with wheat, and we don't know what chaff is. But let me illustrate to you this, this way. Uh, how many of you guys have been to Texas Roadhouse or Five Guys? Let me just see your hands. You've been to one of those two great establishments, Texas Roadhouse. Love the rolls at the beginning. I pretty much fill up on those and then get the check and leave. Um, that's good enough for me because they're addicting. But at the beginning of that meal, they'll give you a kind of a thing of peanuts, right? This big tin of peanuts. And so you're kind of cracking the peanuts and you're eating them. Well, what happens is you take the husk or the shell and you don't eat that, right? The uninitiated, you don't just swallow that. You crack it open. And then what do you do? At Texas Roadhouse, I was a little intimidated at first, but you just toss it on the ground. And they're cool with this. At Five Guys, not so much. But you can do that at Texas Roadhouse. And they'll just come by and say, how you doing? And they'll sweep it up. It's no problem. 
uh, but you toss it aside. It's inconsequential. It's not part of the meal. It's protective and, and needed at the beginning, but then it's tossed aside. That's the idea here. That's the picture. He's saying that the ungodly's life is like chaff. It's just here and gone. It's temporal and meaningless. Thirdly, though, on the screen, the unrighteous will not experience eternal life, but will be judged. Notice that he says, verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand. Remember standing? They won't stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous or in the way of the righteous. Interesting. This morning, it doesn't matter how sincere you are if you're not of the righteous, you've not given your life to Christ, repented and trusted Christ, it doesn't matter how sincere you are, you may be sincerely wrong. It doesn't matter how many good deeds you've done. No good deed in all of creation will outweigh treason against the Creator God. That logic is as sound as if you were driving 75 in a school zone and you struck a kindergarten child and killed them, but then you asked the judge to let you off the hook because you support a child in Africa through Compassion International. You see how it doesn't, it doesn't matter how much good you've done. It's wonderful you've done good, but that doesn't matter uh, with the wrong that you've done. It doesn't matter what excuses that you conjure up. You will be laid bare at the judgment seat of God and will have nothing to utter except the word, and you'll remember this, the word guilty. Now for the Christian, the sure eternal wrath of God upon sinners should not bring fear to us, it should bring tears. Knowing that our friends, that our classmates, that our neighbors, even our families may suffer in the lake of fire in torment apart from God for all of eternity should spur us to prayerful compassion. It should spur us to bold witness. We should read verse 5 and with a heavy heart say, there will be many that I know that will not stand in the judgment. They won't stand in the congregation of the righteous. You see, the blessed man looks a lot like a stable fruit-bearing tree near a generous water supply that can withstand the wind and seasons of life, whereas the unrighteous looks a lot like a forgotten shell that even the wind can blow away. And that brings us to our final point, verse 6, the sovereign God, the, the one who's sovereign over both uh, camps of people. Verse 6, it says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Note with me the sovereign knowledge of God in the life of the righteous man or woman. Uh, the word here for knows is very powerful. I want you to circle, underline the word knows. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, okay? Now, this word knows doesn't mean acquainted with. It doesn't mean generally heard of, but the word is used in other places in um, the Hebrew scriptures for a husband intimately knowing his wife. It was used of Adam back in Genesis who know, it says he, Adam knew his wife, Eve. What does that mean? It means that he knew her in an intimate, in a, a very personal way as they consummated their marriage. In the Septuagint, it's translated in the Greek as gnosko. It's an experiential knowledge, a knowledge of truly knowing uh, of the fullness of intimate knowledge. Uh, this word was used to refer to God knowing Moses and speaking to him. For God knowing when David sat down and when he arose in Psalm 139. And what a wonderful truth, isn't it? To know that the Father intimately knows us. Like, like right now in heaven, 
there's not an angel approaching the father saying, hey, father, so there's this guy. He's a real case work. I mean, this guy needs some help. He needs your help. He needs your direct intervention. Well, who is it? Oh, his name's Pilgrim. And, and, and he's just like, we're, we're done. We don't know what to do with this guy. We need your help. And the father goes, oh, you mean the guy with the Christian hippie parents? I can't believe they named him Pilgrim. <laughs> uh, I think I've heard of him, right? No, that's not the idea. That God's generally acquainted. Maybe he's heard of you. No, see, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 3, that those who love God are known by him. He told the church in Galatia that they were known by God. He said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.19 on the screen, he says, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. Perhaps the most comforting of all, Jesus said in John chapter 10, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Did you catch that? Just as I know the Father and just as the Father knows me, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Listen, beloved, rest in the truth today, the biblical truth that you're known by God. He knows the way of the righteous. He's acquainted with you in an intimate, personal way. Jesus was incarnated. He was clothed with humanity. He intimately understands us. Uh, He understands hunger and thirst and loneliness and despair and fear, and exhaustion, and laughter, and rejection, and friendship, and betrayal, and joy, as well as suffering and agony. He knows us all intimately in what it means to be human, but he also knows us by name, and he lays down his life for us. But notice the contrast. Even though the Lord knows the way of the righteous, he says in verse 6, but the way of the wicked will perish. Vincent says this. He says, how safe is the man who abides in God, while he who puts himself outside of the restraints of divine law forfeits likewise its protection. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 7. He said, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. So they know enough to address Jesus as Lord. And he says, it's not going to be a few. It's going to be many. And they're going to say, did we not prophesy in your name? So they have an ability to prophesy. Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And Jesus says, then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, Jesus' statement is simply, I never knew you. You may have all these good deeds heaped up, but it it isn't about good deeds. It's about being known by God. It's about a relationship with God, and that's only possible through Jesus Christ. This morning, as we apply this passage of Scripture, I want to do this in three ways. And I think it's so fitting that as we kick off this series we call Doxology, that this is a song about wisdom. That we can sing songs that remind us we're not to walk in sin, but we're to walk in a way that's pleasing to God. But as we apply this, three things. I want you to just consider these. And here's what I want us to do. I don't want you to consider your neighbor who's sitting next to you. Don't consider your husband who didn't come with you today. Don't consider your aunt or uncle or that one guy on social media. I want you to, for all of us to consider ourselves. Number one, you are either on the way to destruction or the way to eternal life. So my application for us this morning is to check your path. Earlier in that same section in Matthew 7, Jesus said this. He said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. 
For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. You see, in this psalm, we see the way of the righteous and the way of the unrighteous. And you and I are on one of those two paths. There's not a third path. Destruction is the wide and easy way. Life is the narrow and difficult way that few find. Which path are you on? You might say, well, I'm a believer. I'm on the right path. Well, then I would just add a believer. If you're on the path to eternal life, how much influence does the path of destruction have on us? And that brings us to our second idea, and that is that your life will either be barren or blessed, so stay fruitful. You see, as long as the world is what it is, godliness is never going to be popular. All around us, we will have seemingly strong and solid influences telling us how to live our lives. Oh, this is how you parent. No, this is how you find success and joy. This is how you find contentment. But listen, the sobering truth is, according to Psalm 1, many people who seem successful by worldly standards will be judged total failures by God. They look fruitful, and yet God assessment, God's assessment of them is chaff. So we need to be mindful of the influences that we're listening to. Who are we consulting? I uh, heard a story this week about a company that wanted to improve efficiency, and so they hired a consultant. And he called a meeting of all the employees of the company. And uh, uh, he said, listen, guys, you need to listen to us. We are the experts. Listen to us. We are the experts. And so I'm going to give you a scenario. Imagine you're on the Titanic, and it's sinking. And so you climb into a lifeboat. Which direction do you go? And everyone just sat there quiet. And he said, well, what if you had the ship's navigator with you? Uh, which way would you go? You'd go the way the navigator told you to row, wouldn't you? And his point was trying to be, you need to listen to experts. Well, uh, some people were kind of agreeing until one employee stood up and said, I don't know, the navigator's already hit one iceberg. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. So we need to be mindful of those who are listening to and those who are consulting. We need to guard our lives from the influence of the ungodly. But oh, how happy is the man or woman who follows the counsel of the word of God, who ignores the folly of man's wisdom, who stays close to the source of living water. He or she will be contented indeed. In eternity, will you be known simply among men or will you be known by God? Your life's either barren or blessed, so stay fruitful. Thirdly, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ, so trust Christ. All of us today are born into Adam, and so we're in one of these two camps. We're born in Adam, or we're born again in Christ. The Bible puts all people into these categories, and those of us who have been born again by the Spirit of God, we've repented, we've trusted Christ, we're now in Christ. You cannot move away from the path of destruction to the way of life simply by being born into a Christian home. You cannot move from the path of life to the, or path of death to the path of life simply by acting righteously. You cannot be rewarded righteousness. It's not a trophy you earn after a good season of life. It's not rewarded. It's received by faith in the finished work of Christ on your behalf. So by turning from our rebellion uh, and placing our faith in his finished work of uh, redemption on the cross, he pays for our sin and he lays down his life as a substitute. We receive his righteousness, and that moves us from a life of empty meaningless to a life of fruitful impact. That is not something that happens accidentally. It doesn't happen by osmosis, by default. 
you must repent of your sin and trust Christ. And some of you have not done that. And before the service concludes, as we are wrapping up and people are leaving, there's going to be some folks in the back. They're available every week for prayer. But today I want to encourage you, if something I said stirred you up and you realize, I may be a part of that many who have said to Jesus, Lord, Lord, but I've never actually trusted my life to Christ. Uh, I want to give you an opportunity uh, as the service concludes to make your way to the back and to pray and just invite Jesus into your life as you turn from your sin and receive the gospel. As we close, I'm going to invite James and our worship team forward to close us in song. And there's one element to this psalm that we may have missed. And so go ahead and close your Bibles. I want to wrap this up with a final idea here. Years ago, there's a Bible teacher who was invited to Palestine. And he was invited to speak to a group of Jews uh, who were curious about the Old Testament. This is a true story. It's not, you know, a fake story. And so he was kind of a pastor apologist, and he wanted to prove to them who Jesus was. And so he brought his Bible, and he said, I want to read to you from your scripture, Psalm 1. And he's reading this to a group of, of um, Jews. And so he read Psalm 1, and then he said, Who is the blessed man whom the psalmist is speaking about? This man never walked in the counsel of the wicked. He never stood in the way of sinners. He never sat in the seat of mockers. This man in Psalm 1 was an absolutely sinless man. Who was that man? Well, no one spoke. And so he said, was that our great father Abraham? And um, one old man said, no, it can't be Abraham. He denied his wife and he told a lie about her, so he definitely sinned. Another person, uh, uh, well, the pastor then said, well, what about the lawgiver Moses? And another person said, no, it can't be Moses. Uh, Moses killed a man and lost his temper by the waters of Meribah. And so the speaker said, what about David? And they said, no, everyone knows about David's adultery. It can't be David. And so they just sat silent for a long time. Well, then one elderly Jewish man stood up and he said, my brothers, I have a little book here that someone gave me. It's called the New Testament. And I have been reading it. And if I could believe this book, uh, if I could be... And the pastor was able to share the gospel with that gathering. Did you ever consider that Jesus is the righteous man found in Psalm 1? Jesus is the righteous man who did not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He didn't stand in the way of sinners. He didn't sit in the seat of the scornful, though he was fully man, holy man, holy God. He came and he was the righteous man who prospered and imputes his righteousness to us by faith. So listen, what I don't want you to do is listen to this message and feel like you need to go out today and you need to be more righteous. I want to encourage you just to look to Jesus, the righteous man who was without sin, the one who is the word made flesh, who reaped the ultimate fruit by sowing his life on the cross. My encouragement is for you to look to Jesus for your righteousness and to rest in his finished work on your behalf. Amen? Let's stand together. I want to pray for us as a church. Lord, we thank you that as we look to this psalm, we see a great picture of a man without sin, a man who didn't allow the world, the corruption, the deceitfulness of sin to capture his heart. Though he was born of woman, he died a sinner's death. 
and he rose again triumphantly over the grave. And Lord, we pray that today as we look to Jesus for our righteousness, that we can take that first step of going from the unrighteous path to the path of the righteous, from one being in Adam to being in Christ. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here today that does not yet know Jesus, who's not yet known by him, that they would repent and trust Jesus today. They would receive prayer. They would make a confession of faith. Lord, we love you, we worship you, and we thank you that our righteousness has been imputed to us. We don't need to conjure it up and try to be more fruitful today. We can just abide in the vine and trust you. We love you, we worship you, we look to you. In his name alone, Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.